You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are a good and gracious God of love, and you have made your love known to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation bears witness to him. We thank you that you inspired these words to be written so many years ago and ensured that they would be given to us today. We pray now that in this reading and preaching of your word that you would inspire it by the same spirit and that you would enable all of us to hear the word of grace you wanna give us today so that we could respond to your voice with obedience with love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you um, on this lovely, humid Sunday morning in Richmond, Virginia, in an air-conditioned space. Isn't that so good? We're so grateful for the small things. I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Third. I want to welcome you for visiting today. Um, This summer, we're in a little study, a sermon series that we're calling Pointing to the Promise, as you can see up there on the screens. The whole basis of this series, and I hope that you're gathering this as we've been working through these classic stories of the Old Testament, is that the point of this is not just for us to understand these individual stories of the Old Testament, but ultimately to see the way that these individual stories point to the great big story about God and his great love for the world. I wonder what you would say if someone came up to you and said, so what is the Bible really all about? What is the Bible? What would you say? You know, I think some people think that the Bible is sort of a collection of of rules and regulations telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, Other people think of the Bible as sort of a collection of inspirational and heroic stories about the spiritual life. And of course, the Bible does contain some rules and the Bible does contain some great inspirational stories. But in the end, it is not any one of those things. In fact, in the end, the Bible isn't really about you and what you should do at all. In the end, the Bible is about God and what God has done to redeem and rescue all creation. That's what the story of the Bible is about. And so every little story in the Bible is pointing like a signpost to the great big story of God's redemption of the world, right? That's why we have a little signpost there, like you're walking on a trail, because Every story in the Old Testament even is declaring in advance to the summit, pointing to the great big summit, which is God's rescue of the world through his Messiah, Jesus. So today we're looking at one of those great little stories in the Old Testament. It's the famous story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And as we'll see, it's not much of a battle. Um, and it's a great memorable story. So let's, let's read it together. Um, I'm reading from Joshua chapter five, starting at verse 13. I'm not gonna read the whole story, just the introduction to it. So if you wanna read along with me, um, or you can just listen, let's hear God's word. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua was alarmed and went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, 
What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast in the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So let me, let me give you some context of where we are in this story. Last week, Elizabeth preached a great sermon on how God rescued his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, drowning their enemies in the bottom of the depths. And then right after that, God brings them into the desert and he brings them to a mountain called Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And he establishes a covenant with them to be his people. And he gives them the ways he wants them to live in the 10 commandments, that's Exodus 20. And then after that, they kind of make their way out to the desert to go to Canaan, the promised land. And God provides for them in miraculous ways in the desert with quail and manna. And they finally come to the edge of the promised land and they're ready to go in. This is in Numbers chapter 14, if you wanna read it. And Moses decides he's gonna send some spies. So he chooses a person from each of the tribes and he sends these 12 guys in and they go in and they check out the land of Canaan and they come back. And do you remember what happened, some of you? 10 of the 12 say, I mean, it's great and all, but those guys are really big and scary and there is no way that we are gonna be able to take them. That's what 10 of the 12 spies said. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb say, yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're strong, but our God is bigger and stronger and we have what it takes to take them. But did the Israelites listen to Joshua and Caleb? No, they did not. They chose to be afraid and they complained and they got upset and they rebelled against God. And for their rebellion, God sends them back into the wilderness for all that generation to drive out, to, to die out, okay? So where we pick up in this story is 40 years after that. 40 years they have been wandering in the terrible desert wilderness. 40 years, all of them have died out, except even Moses, except for Caleb and Joshua. And now Joshua is their leader. He is the new Moses. And unlike before, Israel is now trusting God to take them into the promised land. They have renewed their covenant with him. They're ready to go. And all that stands now between them and and the promised land is the city of Jericho. Kids, this is a a big, scary city. It's not like cities today. It's a sort of a city surrounded by walls, like a big fortress with a mean, terrible army inside, far more militarily equipped than Israel could ever be. And so just before this battle of this big, scary army, Joshua is out scouting, strategizing, planning for how in the world he and the teensy-weensy army of Israel are going to take this amazingly strong city. He looks up and there's a man. It's very unusual for a man to be wandering outside the city fortress just before a battle. He sees this man and To make it more alarming, he is carrying a drawn sword, which is a symbol of attack and violence and aggression. 
And so Joshua runs up and confronts him. He says, I am commander of the army of Israel. Are you for me or are you against me? And the guy looks at him and is like, no, neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army and you are asking the wrong question, my friend. Not if I am with you, but if you are for or against me. And so in this sudden shock of a moment, Joshua is reminded that this is not actually a battle between Israel and Canaan. This is not actually Israel's fight at all. It is God's war. It is God's fight. It is God's battle and is ultimately must be God's victory and God's victory alone. So Joshua says, well, what's the plan then? Okay, you're in charge. What's the plan? Because actually I was just wondering how in the world we were gonna do this. And so the angel of the Lord um, tells him two things. First, he says to take off his sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground, set apart land. This is reminiscent of Moses and his commissioning at the burning bush, remember that? But it's also striking because the place that he's standing, the ground where he's standing is what? It's the land of Canaan land that is currently possessed and ruled by the pagan Canaanites. And yet the angel of the Lord says, this is not their land, this is mine. This is my land. Before you have even entered it, it belongs to me and it is mine to give to you. So he reminds them, this is God's set apart land. The second thing he does is he gives them the battle plans, which are really bizarre. He tells Joshua to march around Jericho with his army, to walk around it and surround it every day, once a day for six days in a row and to bring along with it the Ark of the Covenant and the priests representing the, God, the presence of God. And so this is what they do. For six days in a row, the army marches around the city. I'm gonna move you, sir. Marches around the city and they do this for six days in a row. And can, kids, can you imagine what the, the, the people in the city of Jericho were thinking? I mean, looking out their little windows, what are these guys doing? What a bunch of dummies. What do they think that what, do they not have, do they not have any weapons? Did they forget what it means to have a siege? I mean, but here they go every day for six days in a row, just walking around. And then he tells them on the seventh day to march around the city seven times, seven times to march around the city on the seventh day. And at the end of the seventh time, he wanted the priests to blow all of their trumpets. And then he wanted all the people to yell and shout as loud as they could. So kids, we're gonna do that right now. Don, when I, when I point to you, I want you to blow the trumpet as loud as you can. And kids, I want you to shout as loud as you can. Okay, ready? Go, Don. Go. go. And then bam, the walls just fell. Not a single sword drawn, not a single spear thrown, not a single arrow shot. And the walls just fell just like that. That was amazing, Don. Thank you. What? And they just walked right in and took the city. I mean, an amazing story, right? Pretty amazing. But remember, the purpose of all of this is not so that we can just sort of enjoy a good story. The point is for us to look at how this little story points to the great big story of God's rescue of the world. And so what do we learn from this story about that? Well, two things I wanna focus on today. First, that this story tells us about the promise, God's promise of a place of rest. God's promise for a place of rest. This story is so, I think, so remarkable because it points to one of the great big themes in the whole Bible that literally run, runs from Genesis chapter one to the very end of the Bible. If you think back to the beginning of the Bible, if you've, if you've ever heard it before, you know that in Genesis one and two, God creates the world 
and he makes it good and he gives his people a place to be happy with him forever. Kids, do you remember the name of that place? What's the name of that place? Adults, any of you remember? Eden, thank you. Good job, big people. Um, So God gives them a place and this place was meant to be a place of peace, of rest, a place of flourishing and happiness where they could dwell and enjoy God, each other in creation forever. Did it work out for them to stay in this place? No, it did not. They turned away from God. They turned away from his love. And as a result, they were expelled. They had to leave that place of rest and joy. And the story looked really sad and dark, but God didn't give up. And in Genesis 12, he comes to a man named Abram and he makes some promises to him. He makes three promises to be precise. He promises that he would become a great nation. He promises that he would be blessed. And do you remember the third promise? He promises to give him a place, a land. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land, Genesis 12, seven. It's a promise that God, after Eden, God will once again restore his people to dwell in a good and happy place with him forever. It took a really long time for that promise to be fulfilled. In fact, it took so many years that God's people probably thought that God forgot about his promise. For 400 years, They were in slavery in Egypt and slaves, of course, do not have a place of their own. For 40 years after that, they wandered in the wilderness, a restless exile in the desert with no place of their own. And so here in Joshua, we see God finally fulfilling that promise to Abraham to give his people a place, this land of lasting rest where they could once again dwell with God in rest. Isn't it so interesting that he had to march around the city for six days, and on the seventh day, God brought them into the land of rest. What does that remind you of? Hopefully, it's meant to remind you of creation. It's almost like a recreative act that after six days of working, God is resting. He's bringing them into the place of rest forever. Now, let me ask you this, if you know the story. Did this work out very well for them? Did they just settle down in this promised land and have a wonderful place of rest forever. No, no. Once again, it, it was like Genesis 3 all over again. Once again, God's people turned away and rebelled and worshiped pretend gods and hurt each other. And so once again, they were expelled. They had to leave their place. In 597 BC, they were overtaken by their enemies, carried into exile in Babylon, where they once again lived a displaced people. And that's pretty much the way things stayed for a really long time. Some Jewish people migrated back to Judah and Jerusalem. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah but they never really had a place of their own. They were always kind of remained bullied and subjected first by the Greeks, then by the Romans. And God's people remained for hundreds of years, longing again for a place, longing for a Messiah who would come and reclaim their land, reclaim their place so they could once again be at rest with God. So when Jesus showed up on the scene, a lot of people thought this is what he was gonna do for them. He talked about a place a place called the kingdom of God. And he talked about himself as the king of that kingdom. And a lot of people thought Jesus is gonna do that. He's gonna kick out the Romans and he's gonna destroy our enemies and he's gonna reclaim the land and he's gonna bring us back to a place where we can be at rest again with God. But it turns out what Jesus was talking about was not so much a physical place. He was talking about a spiritual place a place of God's reign where anyone can be free of sin and death and guilt and shame and can experience mercy and forgiveness and grace. It's something that anyone can experience no matter what and no matter where they happen to be. 
And so now for all of those who live in between the two comings of Jesus, that's where we live, we live in this in-between time. We live in a world that is still marked by sin and death and sorrow. We very much are still in exile, very much still in the wilderness. And yet we have a place. We have a place with the triune life of God. We have a place in the community of Jesus and the spirit. Wherever we are, no matter how much suffering we may be enduring, we have a place at home with God. And yet we also have a promise, a promise that one day the new Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, will lead us, his people, into the true promised land. This is what's promised in Revelation 21, that heaven and earth will be joined, a new creation will come, and all death and all tears and sorrow will be wiped away, and we will finally be in that place of everlasting shalom, rest with God forever. That's what this story is pointing to, the promise of a place of rest. Isn't it amazing that this little story points to this grand theme that runs literally from the beginning to the end? That's the first promise. But the second thing that we see in this story is God's promise about the path to that place of rest. How do we get there? How do we get to that place of deep rest with God? Well, when it comes to getting rest, we all feel we have to work for it, right? Uh, We work hard during the week so you can rest on the weekends. You work hard during the year so you can rest on vacation. And you work hard during your career so you can rest in your retirement. But So when it comes to rest, uh, I think we all feel that we need to work and fight and strive for it. It's kind of baked in our DNA. But the great truth of this story is, is that when it comes to the place of ultimate deep rest for our souls in our life with God, the way there is not hard work, but grace. The way there is not striving, but trusting in the good work of God for us. Joshua thinks that getting into the land is all up to him, right? He's gearing up for battle. He's strategizing for war, planning out his, 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 his work. But the angel of the Lord shows up and reminds him, this isn't your war at all. This is God's battle. And this is God's fight, not yours. And if that wasn't enough, he gives him a ridiculous war plan, which essentially amounts to Israel watching Well, God does all the work. You know that song that we sang when we were kids? Um, Maybe you can sing with me. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Yeah, it's rubbish. Sorry, guys. Uh, It's wrong. Joshua didn't fight at all, right? He He just walked. He never drew a sword, right? He just walked and then God made the thing fall down. Not sure who wrote that song, but we should do a correction. Because this is ultimately even Joshua's name, which is also the name given to the Messiah. Yeshua means the Lord saves. And that's what this story is about. It's about how God ultimately gets the victory. God conquers, God delivers, God overcomes. And all God's people do is have to wait and trust and ultimately receive the victory that God accomplishes on their behalf. That's how they get into the promised land. And this is our reality. I think all of us, many of us are striving and fighting and working to finally get the life that you want and the, the family you want and the body you want and the health you want and the, and the rest you want. But I, I'm telling you, I have tried that and you will be eternally restless until you know and receive the deep rest of soul that God alone can give you in and through Jesus. This is what Yeshua has done. He has has gone up against the most horrific enemies of sin and death and Satan himself 
As we stand there helpless and he has defeated them, brought them down in the depths of hell, triumphed over them in the resurrection. Why? So that we can be given the rest, the land, the place of rest that Christ alone can give. Ephesians 2.8 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is a story that points to the great truth of grace, that when it comes to our salvation, the deep soul rest that all of us long for, ultimately we don't earn it, we don't strive for it, we don't perform for it. We joyfully receive the victory of God through our Yeshua for us. So where does that leave us now? Let me, let me close um, with just a good word from the book of Hebrews, which takes this little story and points to the great big story about God's rescue through Christ. The writer of Hebrews writes this in chapter four. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Let me close. I just think this is a remarkable little section of scripture that is both deeply comforting and strongly challenging. And I just want to close with both a quick comfort and a quick challenge for all of you. Okay, first the comfort. The comfort here that is offered in this text is that the rest is available for you right now. It says simply, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest, rest from their works. You can define a Christian in a lot of different ways, but one way to define what a Christian is, it is someone who rests in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. That's one way to describe what a Christian is. Let me, let me just level with you, especially for you young people who like think the world is your oyster. It's not. And you will never do enough. And you will never work hard enough. And your to-do list will always be flowing. And, and, and eventually, after working really hard, you will die. And you will not accomplish the things you want to accomplish. And you will not have the life that you aimed to receive. And then in the end, you will stand before the judgment seat of God and you will not have what it takes to stand before his holy wrath. I'm telling you, when it comes to life and eternity, you will never work hard enough. You will never be good enough. You will never accomplish enough. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, here's the counterintuitive example. You rest in the work of another. You trust in the accomplishments of the general, the victor, the Yeshua who went before us on our behalf and did everything necessary for our life and for our salvation. To be a Christian means that you, of course, work hard, but in the end, you deeply trust that when it comes to the soul, the restlessness of soul that we all carry, that inner murmuring of self-reproach that we all carry around in us, that that voice can be silenced ultimately by receiving the finished accomplishment of Jesus on our behalf. You're free, free from having to work your way to God, free, you know, you have the val all the value you ever need in Christ. You have an identity beyond your accomplishments. Finally, that inner murmur can be silenced. And there's ways y'all, that you can practice that every day. I wanna encourage you to, to practice receiving every day the rest that God wants to give you. One of the ways you can do that is by actually resting. I'm speaking to a bunch of high accomplished type A personalities here. 
to actually practice rest as a sign of rebellion against the restlessness of the world. One of the ways you can do that is by resting. So what if this afternoon, instead of like gearing up for a new week and getting out your to-do list and mowing your lawn and doing all the things you needed to get ready for the week, what if you rebelled by taking a nap or going for a walk or going down to do a river float or hanging out with people that you love? What if when all of your brain is flowing with all the things that you have to get done and get accomplished this week, you chose to say no to that, you know, like they do on the cooking shows, they say, time's up, and they just stop in the middle of the work. What if you did that? What if you just stopped? And you made the choice to say that everything that is ultimately necessary for my life has already been accomplished. I am the beloved of God in Christ, and I am resting. Or what if you took control of your phone Right? Our phone is like this restless treadmill of work and information and image management that is just spiraling out at us all the time. Set times to turn it off. Turn off the notifications. Put it to bed. Right? By, by, by these simple practices, we're, they're not just good for our bodies and our brains, they're good for our souls because they point us to the fact that you are a complete and whole person, you are living right now in the place of rest, even when your most important work is unfinished. What a gift. So that's the first thing. That's the first comfort. It's to receive the rest. But the second is a challenge, and that is to strive for that better rest. There is a sense in which we are all still waiting. We're waiting, we're longing, we're looking, we're in exile for our ultimate home. And as long as we are living in this shadow land, Friends, we will never be at home. So the writer of Hebrews says, strive to enter that future rest. Never settle down in this cursed creation. Always be looking and waiting. Do not be like the Israelites who got so impatient that they started turning to other gods, trying to find rest in something other than God's promise. We all feel, uh, uh, even as, as Christians, sometimes especially as Christians, we feel this deep restlessness inside, a sense of displacement. And the temptation is very strong to keep trying to find that place of rest in something other than God's promise. So you keep looking for that next epic vacation. You keep looking for that perfect job. You keep looking for what next room in your house you can renovate, or you keep scrolling through Zillow trying to find that perfect place to live, right? But y'all, like a fish trying to settle down in a birdhouse, trying to find your true and lasting home of rest in this cursed creation will leave you gasping for life. The alternative is this, to set your hope on the promise of that future place of rest. We wait, just like the Israelites had to do. We wait for that time when God will finally bring shalom. He will bring justice. He will bring that time when all sighing and sorrow will flee away. And so the exhortation, the challenge is keep living for the king, even when it's hard. Keep looking to that hope, even when you want to turn to something else. Keep waiting, keep hoping, keep trusting, keep watching, keep returning to the promise, waiting for the day when God will finally bring us. Yeshua will lead us in through his victory to the world made right. So here's the great truth, friends. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done, he has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Maybe just take a moment to respond to God in whatever way you feel prompted by him, by his spirit. Maybe you need to thank him for something. Maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you need to ask him for something. But in whatever way you feel the spirit inviting you, just take a moment to respond to him now. We thank you, Father, for sending to us in your grace that great Yeshua, the one who in the power of the Spirit defeated all of our enemies for us and now stands victorious over creation, ready to redeem all things. We pray you would give us restless, restful hearts that are on the one hand deeply resting in the grace of Jesus, who said to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Help us to be those who return to the deep rest of God in Christ every day. And at the same time, give us restless hearts that we would never be at home in these shadow lands, but that we would be looking and watching and waiting and yearning and hoping and even working for that great day when you will bring the great rest that you promised to all creation. Give us restful restless hearts as we wait for the King. We pray in Christ's name.